A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quick talk, fast talk, street talk, talk radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Radio you can believe in. Mike Graham. Speaking common sense unto the nation. On talk radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on the home of Common Sense at Talk Radio as we hurtle towards the first proper spring weekend of the year. It might not quite be good enough for a barbecue, but there's plenty of hope that things are taking a turn for the better. And unless you're planning on going anywhere on a P&O ferry, uh, it could be a very good weekend indeed here uh, in the UK. Up first this morning, the leader of Reform UK, Richard Tice, is here. He'll explain just how an international company like P&O can simply dismiss all of its UK workers without any ramifications at all. We'll also get the latest on the party investigation which has been going for seven weeks already and has now been given even more people to actually investigate with why what on earth is taking them this long why on earth have they not already sorted it all out and why can they not yet find out what actually happened plus uh, i'll be asking richard how the dvla can possibly operate with half the staff they started with all of whom are working from home the answer is of course that they can't and when will the civil service actually get with the programme and start doing the work that they were supposed to do? We already know the foreign office isn't fit for purpose, the home office is still useless, and now the DVLA is practically uh, completely and utterly sta- on standby with nothing actually going on. 0344 Coming up, we're talking to Tony Sewell. He's the author of the report on racial disparity, which no one on the left side of politics liked after he was refused an honorary degree by Nottingham University, despite them doing uh, doling them out to two former Chinese ambassadors and the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Colonel Richard Kemp is here as well with his take on military manoeuvres in Ukraine after a top Russian general was arrested by the Kremlin. He's obviously the guy that's going to get the blame for it all going horribly wrong. And Angela Levin is checking in with us as well. She's got news that the BBC have paid out damages to Princess Diana's top aide after that Martin Bashir scandal, which is still rippling around in the corridors of power at the Beeb. 0344-499-1000. It is Friday. It is the day uh, for common sense to reign. And of course, this is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very, very good morning to Mr. Richard Tice. Richard, how the devil are you? A very good morning to you, Mike. Welcome back to the 10 o'clock slot Well, thank Friday, you. you yeah, I, was, I was saying to Jeremy, I woke up this morning thanking the Lord that I wasn't <laughs> actually sitting where he was sitting. The alarm went still, a bit later. It was 7 o'clock and I was still actually in bed, which was nice. Well, it's a remarkable, bright, cheery day Lovely, outside. Uh, but I don't think there's much common sense at the headquarters of P&O Ferries going on. An extraordinary story. I mean, we were sitting here when the news came through um, that basically P&O were making a major announcement very shortly and they've now suspended all of their services. And it was like, sorry, what's going on? We assumed they were going under. We assumed at, at first they were going to declare that they had to go into bankruptcy or something. The, you know, the, the travel business had crippled them. Not enough uh, customers, not enough money. But then, of course, it turns out they fired every single UK-based worker. No, I mean, it's, it's an absolute scandal. It really is appalling at so many levels. The idea that they think that they can just lay off 800 UK-based workers and have lined up replacements for yeah. the vast majority of them uh, to march one group off, you know, potentially in handcuffs, yeah. uh, and then replace them with cheaper agency workers, uh, you know... Leaving aside the whole issues around safety of, of operating ships, mm. um, it, uh, it, it, I'm absolutely convinced that it breaches 
uh, UK employment law. It must do, sure. And I, I really am convinced because it's about where's the place of work and under what jurisdiction. And uh, these are UK workers primarily operating out of UK ports. The idea that they think they can be very clever and rely on contracts that might have been under uh, some other jurisdiction, I just don't think will wash at no. all. And I, I come from the world of business. I cannot imagine uh, the stupidity, stupidity and idiotic thought processes going through the board of directors of P&O Ferries. This is, I mean, they will have planned this for weeks or months and to think they could have got away with this mm. and that it wouldn't be an absolute uh, disaster at every level um, just defies I mean, surely they would logic. have, I mean, as we used to say about things in Downing Street, surely they would have wargamed this. They'd be sitting in the board uh, room talking about what could possibly happen. Could there be a backlash? Could there be a union kind of revolt and all of the things that are now happening? Surely they would have seen all that coming. Well, I, I suspect what they didn't see coming was the ability of the government to say uh, this is unacceptable. Mm. And in the same way the government has imposed sanctions on Russian-related entities and things, actually the government can say uh, that uh, we're going to withdraw contracts from you from some of your other uh, wholly owned subsidiaries yeah. of the uh, the Dubai group, because, of course, it's all part of uh, DP World. They've got huge uh, ports there and ports in the UK, and th there'll be all sorts of contracts with the government, and the government can make life very, very difficult for them indeed. And I think that um, they're going to be really quite uh, quite shocked. Uh, leaving aside the absolute PR disaster yeah. on the brand, and all of us, customers, wherever there's a choice, uh, if we're uh, using a uh, one of their ferries, and if there's a choice of another company, I suspect people will use, use the choice. But there's another point here where, mm. I haven't checked, but there may well be crossings where actually uh, either there isn't a choice or they've got uh, contractual service obligations. Because, of course, some of these ferry routes... Uh, for the lorries and things, actually, as part of our, you know, as part of our critical national infrastructure, uh, keeping these routes open so that uh, supply chains can flow, and uh, yeah, I think so. There's a there's a significant uh, relationship with government at all levels, and right. I think they, uh, I think they'll find themselves uh, in completely the wrong side yeah. of this. I mean, it's, it's one thing if 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 the if the business is struggling, then. You know, the normal thing is you sit down with, uh, you sit, if you've got union members, you sit down with the unions and say, you know, we're going to have to have a restructuring, mm. or you might put it into receivership pending that. Uh, you know, there would be But they've had no conversations, as far as we can apparently, tell, with the union at all, right? Apparently, no discussions with government, uh, no discussions with unions, and uh, it just, it, given the size and profitability of other parts of the group, mm. uh, this is an extraordinary decision. Yeah, really if you've got a loss-making group, you might say, well, we've either got a restructure or we'll, we'll sell it to someone else who wants to invest in right. return. That's normal business And who are they behavior. actually employing? Because I haven't seen the detail of that either. I mean, you may not know the answer to that, but, I mean, they're supposedly employing foreign nationals, i.e. not people from Britain. So where would they be coming from? I, I don't know. If you've got, if you're taking on hundreds and hundreds of agency workers, mm. uh, the chances are they've come from uh, from all sorts of places. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there is a key issue about uh, knowledge of ships, knowledge of operating yeah. systems for some of the staff, which... Uh, knowledge even understand. just of the geography of the channel, because uh, it's not an easy all, all place to go backwards and forwards. It's and the busiest shipping lane in the world, right? Indeed. And some of the other routes. And it may well be that some of the people have got that experience. We, we just don't mm. know. But fundamentally, it is not allowed under UK law 
uh, to lay someone off and then replace them with exa- someone else in exactly the same role, mm. even if you call it a different title. Right. That is just, uh, that is against the tenets of, of base, I mean, it's one of the most basic tenets of UK employment mm. law. And I think, you know, some lawyers have clearly thought they're, you know, they're a bit of a, uh, a you know, a bit of a smart aleck who's, mm. Uh, who's found a way around it? I think they're going to be in for a massive wake up. Well, this is an absolute PR disaster mm. for uh, for DP World for the group, and and actually it goes right to the top of relations between the UK government and uh, the UAE. Actually. Yes, well, Dubai, uh, where Boris Johnson has only just been. I mean, you know, he turns up in Saudi Arabia three days after eighty-one people have been executed. As Jeremy said, they executed three people while he was there. Uh, he then goes to visit the Sheikh, presumably in Dubai, Sheikh Maktoum, uh, who's the guy running this whole show, uh, who's now decided to pull the rug from P&O Ferries. Yes, in, in reality, he doesn't run the show. I mean... Um, well, it's his, it's his operation, though, isn't it? Ultimately, it's under the ownership of the UAE, but it, he won't have known right. any of this. It, the, it's just you know such a big entity and so many different layers. Yeah, but I mean the but timing isn't great. The is time, no, the timing is is not good in terms of UK mm. and UAE relations right. for sure, and that's why I think actually it will be sorted out pretty sharpish. And I suspect that uh, various people at the top of P and O Ferries and uh, DP World may uh, may find themselves out on their ear. I really do. Yeah, and, and presumably, um, I don't know much about the ferry business, but presumably there will be haulage companies, for example, that have maybe long-term contracts with P and O as they use the ferry service quite a lot, going back and forth to Europe. Oh, completely. Right? And and you know, it is part of our national uh, infrastructure, and it's it's vital that these routes are kept open. And what's extraordinary is they were kept open uh, by those workers throughout the whole COVID crisis mm. uh, under significant pressure. And, you know, it really is a kick in the teeth for the bosses just to say, right, thanks, you're out on your ear. Uh. Leaving aside the appalling manner of, of the way in which they were notified uh, over a sort of a, a short video clip Zoom call. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing just at every level, it's 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 exactly how not to do mm. things. Because the other at thing the human is... level, in terms of empathy, right. in my view, in terms of employment law. PR disaster. I mean, there's literally no upside to this at all, is there? I mean, I'm hearing from people in uh, the, the Middle East that if they were involved with P&O and they're not now, they're actually rather happy about that because they don't want to be associated with this. Oh, I mean, it's 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 catastrophic in terms of the, the PR impact uh, on the business, but, but of course it's also catastrophic for uh, the employees concerned, the anxiety at a desperate time with all the cost of living concerns and the like, just to be told... Just like that, uh, no notice is you know the the uh, the worry, the anxiety, the fear for all of those employees, and indeed employees elsewhere in the business who must be thinking, well, you know, am I next for the chop? Yeah. What's the overall state of the business? Is DP World going to mm. just shut the whole thing down? And uh, I, you know, the government is is quite possibly going to have to step in at, at some level. Yes. Uh, in order to stabilise this whole thing. And will thing. they be able to reinstate the workers or tell those workers that they can be reinstated? I mean, does the government that, have that, that kind of power? Yes, well, that depends really uh, over the next few days, just what happens and the speed at which DP World, I think, backtrack. Yeah. It is extraordinary because if, for example, the government isn't able to stop something like this happening, uh, we're going to be speaking later on to an employment lawyer, as I say, I mean, any, presumably any foreign-owned entity could then follow suit and just say, well, I'll tell you what, we might operate in Britain, but we're going to get rid of all the staff and we're going to bring in our own people. Well, they could only do that if their contracts with the individual members of, of staff, members of the team, mm. 
are contracts written under, which actually says it's under the law of XYZ jurisdiction. Whereas most employment contracts, it said uh, at the end of the contract, in sort of the uh, the terms and conditions that most people don't read, it says, uh, you know, this this contract is, is, is written under UK law right. or English law of England mm. and Wales, uh, and those laws apply in the event of a dispute. Here, it's possible they've tried to write it under someone else's jurisdiction. Mm. Most other companies, I doubt, have uh, gone to that degree. There is an issue with shipping companies that operate across multi-jurisdiction. Right. But again, I think, you know, sometimes lawyer, lawyers can think themselves too clever and sometimes it oh, can yes. come back and bite them. And yes. I think this is definitely one of those. Well, there's an awful lot of lawyers who think they're incredibly clever, and most <laughs> of them are not very clever at all, in fact. Uh, they're very good at putting... They can be very technical, but sometimes yeah. they don't apply the logic of common well, sense. Well, this has always been one of my arguments about Parliament, that sometimes there's too many lawyers in Parliament because they start working things out and doing things over and over again and trying to make out that there's a logic to it when you actually forget what the people actually put you there for. Uh, completely. And I think, I think actually that... We are, the world has changed and shifted, mm. and there are things that are morally acceptable and morally unacceptable yeah. over and above the absolute letter of, uh, of the law. And I mm. think in a variety of things, we're seeing that. And, and this is just another one. And it, we all, I think we all believe in, in free markets and, and the role of capitalism, but it has to work within a, uh, a smart it has box to be of regulation. And, and, but also, it has to be responsible, mm. and uh, it's a two-way ticket. And this actually is a really, really bad advert. When a big corporate behaves mm. like this, yeah. then it calls into question all sorts of things. And it does give grist to the mill for those who want more regulation and who want more uh, uh, less free market. It does, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a champion of of unions. Yeah, but there are moments when actually uh, there is a role to play, yeah. and and this clearly is. Uh, is one of them when corporate bosses just abuse the whole system yeah. in this way. And it's just, I think people have to know that in a mature Western democracy, this is wholly unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's talk about Boris Johnson a little bit, because a couple of stories this morning on top of his visit to the Middle East. Um, Partygate apparently is still going on. The investigation seven weeks in. They still don't know what happened. They still don't know who was there, who wasn't there, what they were doing there, whether they were at a work event. Now they've decided they need more people to investigate it. <laughs> huh? I mean, how does that work? Well, who knows? But I think actually, given what's going on in the world, in Ukraine and things, I think actually most people's appetite uh, is for this and interest in this has diminished dramatically. Yes. And there's a process that will be carried out. But it sort of you get the sense that it's all being kicked into the long mm. grass. There are much more important there are. things that are facing us all, not just Ukraine, but the cost of living crisis, rising taxes, yeah. rising fuel and energy mm. bills. And so on. So and the interest rate going up yesterday. Interest rates people. going up. So look, I think this is uh, being kicked into the long grass. You're seeing MPs withdrawing their letters of no confidence. Mm. So look, I think all of this is it's yesterday's story. We all had our views at the time, but the world has moved on. It has. And Boris Johnson, then for you, safe is he forever? <laughs> not forever. I mean, but... not forever, but certainly for the next election, anyway. Well, he's certainly safe for the foreseeable future, yeah. uh, but it, it, strange things can happen. Events move very quickly, and uh, but I, I, I think the next big thing will be uh, the Chancellor's mm. uh, statement, which I think is next due week, next yeah. week, and whether or not he is going to change tack at all. If he doesn't, then I think that actually the pressure will move from the Prime Minister onto the Chancellor, because mm. I think he may appear rather tin-eared right. uh, to what's going on in the world, <clears throat> there needs to be 
I think there's been some significant adjustments. Yeah. And he should be cutting taxes. I keep banging on Absolutely. about this until I'm blue in the face. But basically, uh, he's got to cut taxes on uh, electricity bills. He's got to ta- cut taxes. He's got to cut fuel duty. He's sure got to cut he? fuel duty. He should be uh, removing the national insurance increase yeah. uh, across the board and actually creating growth. Because what's really happening mm. is the economy is slowing fast. Yeah. And inflation is, is out of control. And you can't deal with inflation by raising interest rates because of the, uh, it, mm. this time around. It's, mm. it's a completely different cause of this inflation. So no, there's, there's some, some big challenges for the Chancellor. I, I, from what I'm hearing, uh, he is going to be tinnied. He's mm. not going to respond to this. And I think it, it may well be that actually he's increasingly out of touch mm. with the problems that people face. Yes, I think that may well be right. Stevie Roberts, we're talking to Richard Tice. We've got lots more to discuss, of course. We'll take your calls as well uh, on the whole business of the P&O debacle uh, and how awful it all is. 0344-499-1000. How any company could possibly get away with simply firing people uh, willy-nilly whenever they feel like doing it without any um, reference whatsoever to the law. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Powered by common sense. Activated by opinion. The voice of reason. In search of the perfect debate. Free speech radio. On the app, on your smart speaker, and on the money. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the home of Common Sense, of course, and you can get us on TV as well. Just go to talkradio.tv or download the app from the App Store, Talk Radio TV, and you can watch us all the way through. And at the weekend, of course, Richard Tice is here himself uh, on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Very impressive of a performance last Sunday, I have to say, given what happened the day before, (laughs) which was an entirely brilliant day out, I have to say. It was a good day out, goodness me. But... uh, no, I mean, I'll be talking about everything that's going on, including my, we have, uh, you, you know, we launched this campaign, Vote Power, Not Poverty, yes. a cross-party campaign, right. uh, to talk about, you know, that we need a national debate and a referendum on, on the costs of net zero, yes. and about the need to use our shale gas treasure, and we were ho- holding a rally in Bolton next mm. Saturday, unfortunately, because you cannot believe the security threats and intimidation that, uh, that we've all had. Uh, speakers, the bullying, mm. the uh, as I say, the intimidation. Also to the venue owner. Mm. I've seen some of the threats that have come through. Goodness. And so we've had to take and, the decision. I mean, I, I, obviously difficult to know who's making these threats, but I mean, are these people coming from the kind of uh, green lobby, would you say? That's what we're assuming. Yeah. We know they're very well funded. Mm. Uh, we know given how they've behaved in the past uh, that, uh, you know, they can be really, really nasty. Mm. And... So uh, we've had to take the uh, regrettable decision to cancel the event and refund all the money. We just can't oh guarantee the uh, the safety and security of the venue and and all of those attending and, and speaking. You had, and you had quite a mixed bag of speakers. We had a cross-party lineup of, of speakers. And you've had a situation where Keir Starmer and the whips of the Labour Party have basically forced uh, the Labour MP in Manchester, Graham Stringer, uh, forced him to withdraw uh, threatening to withdraw the whip. I mean, right. what sort of society do we live in mm. where it seems that we're no longer allowed to have a national debate, a grown-up debate, about different ways to do things, different ways to improve things? In this situation, we think there are much better, more affordable, more strategically sensible ways yes. to reduce emissions, to arrive which, at which cleaner Which I'm sure air, there are. Which there are, and we should have a debate about that. Right. And that's the, the purpose of the campaign. But, oh, no. If you don't comply with a consensus groupthink, yeah. then you must be cancelled, you must be threatened, you must be intimidated, you must be bullied. Yeah. 
And, and it's, uh, only it's, one it's a very sad day for democracy when this is, is the way it's going. And isn't it? And it's no wonder then that people are so fed up with the two-party system because the two-party system at the moment doesn't appear to leave you very much choice, does it? Well, it's, uh, certainly not on net zero anyway. Uh, there's that, and actually, it's it's the uh, the whole issue of consensus group thing mm. on Brexit. Westminster had a settled view, and anybody else uh, would be smeared uh, and labelled as a sort of racist or a bit, whatever. Uh, if they if they wanted to have a different view uh, here on net zero, you're automatically labelled a denier, despite mm. the fact that in my case, for example, I've got an electric car and I'm yeah. installing solar panels and electric vehicles. I just vehicle charges. I just happen to think there's a much smarter, mm. more affordable way of reducing emissions by using our own treasure yeah. under our feet. And I want to have a national debate. Yeah. Look, we, we will not be uh, bullied and intimidated out of having the debate. We will just ha- find different ways. Mm of ensuring that we do so. And yeah. I think, actually, uh, we're starting to get some real traction about that. Oh, I think there's but no it's question. not easy. Well, people, particularly nowadays, when they're looking at their bills coming in for their electricity, for their gas, the, the amount of money they're paying for their petrol, some people now saying they might not be able to take their kids to school because it's so expensive to get in the car now. You know, I mean, people need an alternative. They need to find an alternative voice, an alternative way of powering everything. And there is an alternative way of doing this. Yeah. We've, we've, we've got our own oil in the North Sea, our own gas in the North Sea. We've got huge reserves, incredibly valuable treasure-like mm. reserves of shale gas. Let's be a world leader in using it. Let's reduce our costs. Th- this is all there to be done. We've just got to have a grown-up sensible debate about how to do it and bring people forward. And what's clear is there is a very well-funded group of what I call extreme fanatics yeah. on the uh, on the environmental, mm. uh, the eco-zealots, yeah. Uh, who uh, who don't want that debate? Right. They, you know, and they don't want to be asked any questions either. That's the thing. And, whenever and, but, I get them on and say, "What exactly is net zero? What does it mean to you?" They can't answer that. Well, the simple they question to ask is twofold. One, what happens when the wind doesn't blow? Mm. Do we turn on the can? Do we do we light the candles yeah. uh, because we're not going to have electricity? Right. And the other one is, could you tell me how wind powers twenty five million domestic gas boilers? Yes. And the simple answer is, it doesn't. It can't. And it therefore, never will. end of their arguments. Mm. They are flawed. Right. Finished. And they're stumped. Right. And, and if you can't get enough wind on an island in the middle of the North Atlantic, effectively, um, you're never going to be able to get enough wind anywhere, are you? You're not. And it comes back to the simple point, the wind doesn't always blow, and wind doesn't power gas boilers. Mm. Wakey, wakey, everybody. Yeah. Ask that simple question. If it ain't, don't bro- if it ain't bro- broke, don't fix it. Yeah. And all of our gas boilers, yes, they need a bit of servicing here and there, but they pr- provide us to be warm and cosy and toasty in our homes, mm. and we should keep them. Save our boiler is what I say. Absolutely right. right. Final question to you, Richard. We're nearly out of time. Uh, we've spent half an hour talking. We haven't mentioned Ukraine this morning. Does that mean something? <clears throat> it means that, sadly, the ongoing nightmare, the appalling aggressive tactics, uh, is, is, of course, ongoing. Mm. Every night, every day, we hear more horrors. And, uh, in a sense... We've got to find uh, the right way to ramp up the pressure on Putin. It's going to take time. We all know that. Mm. We all know that it could be weeks, it could be months. But there are some extraordinary stories of heroism amongst the Ukrainian uh, defences, the forces, uh, the use of their drones, for example, uh, to attack Just and the destroy civilians as well. tank, tanks and columns of yeah. tanks and the civilians. And we've no idea how long this is going to go on. But... But actually, the longer it does go on, the harder it gets for uh, the Russian military, Mm. the harder it gets for Putin. And in a sense, the more we have to admire and support the courage and bravery of the Ukrainian 
forces, civilians, uh, men who are taking up arms. Uh, you know, it's every day we hear extraordinary stories uh, that I think, um, you know, we're completely in awe of. Yeah, absolutely right. Richard, look forward to seeing you on uh, Sunday. Uh, we'll be here, of course, until one o'clock. And, of course, uh, coming up, Nick Dubois uh, is in for Ian Collins. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got lots to do, lots of your calls to take, of course. Keep them coming in on the P&O front. We're still trying to get to the bottom of exactly who actually owns it. We know that there's a connection through Dubai. Uh, we also know that there's a connection through various different wealth funds in Dubai. There's a Northern Cyprus connection, it seems, as well. We'll come to all of that. But if you are in any way involved in the story, we'd love to hear from you. 0344 of course. Right now, though, uh, we're going to talk about the civil service because you know on this show, as a matter of course, we talk all the time about various government departments not being fit for purpose. The Home Office, uh, where apparently over in Poland at the embassy, they're working from home. So they're not actually seeing anybody who's trying to come here from Ukraine. The Foreign Office, working from home during the Afghanistan crisis. Uh, I've got with me Paul Morgan Bentley, head of investigations at The Times. Paul, very good morning to you. Thank you for joining us, because you've got a great story in The Times today. DVLA staff watch TV in bed as backlog mounted. Now this, um, we've touched upon this sort of last year, because I think, as I was uh, saying to you earlier, my son was trying to get himself a provisional driving licence and we discovered to our horror that there didn't seem to be anybody doing anything at all in the the Swansea offices of the DVLA. You've done one step further than that and and one better, sent an undercover team in to discover what was going on. So what did you find out? Well, that's exactly it. There had been lots of suspicions and lots of complaints from people that when they were applying for their licences or trying to renew them, it was taking months and months and months. Mm. And it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, often you can't drive as a result, like your son. Yeah. If you're applying for a provisional, you can't even start driving. Right. Um, also, they handle identity documents. So in some cases, people were having their passports stuck there and they couldn't yes, go away. for months on end. Yeah, and you, you might have an elderly relative abroad or some people have talked about missing funerals mm. abroad because the DVLA had their documents. So we decided to go undercover um, and there were jobs at the call centre. And what we found was that for significant periods of the pandemic hundreds of staff there have been doing no work on full pay at home. Incredible. So no work meaning absolutely not even having to check in every day or not even having to file any, any kind Officially of Officially on special paid leave. So, I mean, the stats were that right at the beginning of the pandemic, so there's, about, there's just over 6,000 staff there and more than 3,400, so way over half, were just put on special paid leave. Right. I mean, across the country, everywhere else, people were doing their best trying to f- work out how to work from home. Mm. You know, newspapers, we were having to put out newspapers right. overnight from home. Right. And you get your Wi-Fi source, you get it all sorted, but they, a huge number of them were just, there was no expectation they would do any work. Right. By that summer, when, you know, eat out, help out's about to start, the economy's opening up again, rates are down of COVID, uh, they still had about mm. 2,000 staff on special paid leave at right. home. Because you have to assume, if, if they are asking for people's original documents, which is what, which is what they insist on, you can't send a, a replica, it has to be the original passport, whatever. You know, if that gets sent to the main building, but there isn't anybody in there to look at it, then where does it go? I mean, did they post it out to the, to, to the employees at home? No, so this was exactly the problem. Yeah. The DVLA talks about how a backlog has built of cases. Mm. And in their case, 
it is literally a physical backlog. Right. There are these big crates that have paperwork on it and they have just built up and built up yeah. and built up to the extent that when it peaked in September last year, it was at 1.6 million cases and yeah. it's still just under a million cases, yes. the backlog. And when we were talking about it last year, we got quite a few calls from people from, from taxi drivers to HGV drivers. You remember there was a shortage of HGV drivers at one point and at one point people were saying to me part of the problem is that the HGV licences are not being renewed because the DVLA is so slow and that's part why people aren't driving. Yeah, it was contributing to essentially the country being brought to a standstill. We all remember where we had to queue at four courts because there was the lack of drivers to supply the petrol and Mm. it affected uh, supermarkets as well with food supply and the problems at the DVLA were very much part of that mix that caused those problems. Um, Actually, what happened after that is they then, because it was such a big political issue, they prioritised the HGV drivers. Great, they started to get those moving. But it meant everyone else, people like your son provi- right. applying for a provisional licence, get further back in the queue. Yes, I mean, he did finally get it. I think it was five months, I think, was the actual exactly, amount five of time months. that it took, which is extraordinary. Uh, but one of the things that also happened was that during that period of time, there were a couple of queries that came up, which had to be apparently dealt with on the phone. And they would say, you must phone us. We cannot do this online, blah, blah, blah. Phoned up at one point. Um, his mother made the phone call. The, the person on the other end answered the phone and said, we're very busy. Put the phone down. And that was it. There was no, like, would you mind waiting or we're going to put you in a queue? Just, we're very busy, put the phone down. So this is a problem lots of people have had, that their phone systems are incredibly frustrating. And part of the findings and the reason that we wanted to go undercover is we wanted to see the inside of the call centre. Because there are two issues there. There's one, paper licences and applications building up, building up, building up, physical backlog. Mm. If people are at home, they literally can't open them. The second issue was that the call centre didn't seem to be functioning properly. People mm. weren't being able to get through. So where were they? Yeah. And it turned out that when I walked around the call centre, it was very empty. There were rows and rows of you know black computer screens, oh, really? empty chairs. Huh. Um, and the reason was there were very strict limits on numbers of staff on site. Right. I was there a month ago, so this isn't the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. This is almost two years in. The, the rules there were stricter than any government guidance or it's in Wales and Swansea, so public health of Wales. Yes, I wonder if that's an issue because of the way that Wales has been slightly more harsh, I suppose, on some of the COVID regulations. It was much stricter even than what the Welsh right. um, authorities were suggesting. So, like, you know, by that point, the two-metre rule had been scrapped. There were no restrictions on meeting indoors. But right. at the DVLA in Swansea, all those rules still existed. Right. Um, and so that's the reason people are struggling to get through on the phones. And the second part of the, the problem there, so number one, people being off not doing uh, not being in the office but number two they couldn't work from home so the dvla didn't allow them to log on remotely lots of these staff um so they were if you know if you simply were rotated not to come in that day because there were limits on the numbers of staff in the building you weren't lots of people weren't you just didn't do anything yeah you just you know watch telly at home amazing and one of literally the training manager responsible for training new recruits like me was joking about it and saying, oh, yeah, my manager would be calling me, can you do this? And I'd be like, oh, you're interrupting my series on Netflix. Right. And they were joking about it. But that was the culture there, mm. that, you know, lots of people aren't working anyway. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, millions of people are affected by the backlogs. Well, this is the thing, because we found out, I think, um, during the pandemic and during the sort of work-from-home pandemic, if you want, um, that an awful lot of people actually couldn't work from home and that there was something like only 25% of the population doing it many of whom obviously were civil servants. Yeah, and listen, the country's adapted amazingly. And in some 
in for some companies and some organizations home working has really worked and mm. some people work harder from home yeah. you can't talk about it in blanket terms no but this is a, a government agency which really relies on people being on yes. the site to go through the post and then also to answer the calls because mm. if you're five months delayed at the very least you want to speak to a human being yeah. who can reassure you that it's being dealt with uh, and listen to you right. um but like in your case, people were just getting cut off. Hmm. Absolutely extraordinary. Because the building itself is quite big, isn't it? I think it's about... Somebody sent me a picture of it once, the, the, the DVLA It's a building. few different. In, you... in Swansea. It's like seven, well, the one I've seen is about 17 storeys. Like a tower block. Tower block sort of style building. So that's one of the buildings. Right. But actually, there's a whole campus. Oh, really? You know, there's, there's loads of buildings. Mm. And... You know, that should be helping them. So they're the employing thousands of people, right? Yeah, more than 6,000. Yeah. It's a huge employer in the area. Ah, incredible. And so what do you, make, do you make of it now? I mean, as far as the time when you were there a month ago, I mean, do you think people are now returning to work or is it still the same? At the centre of the problem has been a battle with the union. Mm. The PCS union is very powerful there. They represent civil servants. And they have been arguing that the offices have not been COVID safe. Mm. From my experience... They I'd, seem to do that a lot, the unions, don't they? Well, Grant Shapps was in Parliament uh, a few months talking about it and saying, well, we spent more than £4 million making it COVID safe. Right. And then they switched their demands to ones about pay and holiday. Right. So that's got nothing to do with COVID safety. Yeah. That was his claim. Mm. Um, but certainly my experience having been there, because before we didn't know who to trust. Mm. Were the offices genuinely not COVID safe? Did they need to be at home? Or actually, are they fine? Right. And my experience was it was way stricter than anything else I've experienced right. at this point in the pandemic. Right. And for, for COVID safe, you just basically read... Um, as many restrictions you can put on and as few people working there as possible as far as the unions are concerned. I mean, apparently, if you're in a union, you're much more likely to get COVID. Well, they're huge, you know, they've got huge space between desks there with per big perspex screens right. between people. There were rules that in this situation, we wouldn't be able to speak to each other across a table. Right. There would have to be a huge perspex screen. Yeah. Everywhere else, masks. And these were, you know, rules that you might have expected at the beginning of the pandemic. Yes. But by this point, they need to get way more people into yeah. the office because it's a different stage of the pandemic. Uh -huh. And also, it's two years in. There's no excuse for homeworking not to be possible. No. Anyone not in the office should be able to log on and do a full day's work sure. at home like everyone else. And what did the DVLA say when you approached them with this stuff? They, they've started an investigation, right. which is something they often say in these situations. That'll and take a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Grant Shapps has um, spoken and, and said that he's very unhappy about it and he has asked them to investigate. Um, they say it's not representative. The findings are not representative of a hard working culture in the DVLA. They wanted to make clear that the issue with staff working from home was not down to any kind of technical mm. problems. It was because of access to personal information. Um, and they said they hope to clear the backlogs for most drivers by the end of May. Right. Well, it's a fascinating story. Great read. Uh, brilliant investigation. Well done. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul Morgan, Bentley, Head of Investigations at The Times. Grab the uh, paper itself, or you can get it online, of course, uh, uh, times.co.uk. Uh, we'll be back with your calls after this. Independent talk. Proper talk. News talk. Talk radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on the home of Common Sense at Talk Radio as we hurtle towards the first proper spring weekend of the year. Looking out uh, at the blue sky, it looks positively lovely out there. Uh, if you've got anything planned this weekend, this could be the big weekend to do it. It might not be quite barbecue weather, uh, but it kind of looks as though things are finally taking a turn for the better out of winter and into spring. Unless you're planning on going anywhere on a P&O ferry, uh, it could be a very good weekend indeed. Coming up in this hour, Dr Tony Sewell joins us, education consultant, 
and author of the government-backed report into race in school. He basically concluded that Britain is not institutionally racist and has never been forgiven for it by the left ever since. The latest uh, chapter in his rather interesting life is that Nottingham University are refusing to give him an honorary doctorate. I'm sure he doesn't really mind that, but it seems to be to be entirely in keeping with the hypocrisy of some of these organisations, many of which have got connections with China, many of which have got connections with Russia. But, oh no, don't give an honorary degree to somebody who might have suggested that Britain actually isn't a racist country. We'll find out how his life has been since that report came out. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be talking to an employment lawyer about the situation with P&O ferries because it does seem to me uh, that what they've done is at the very least borderline illegal, isn't it? Just firing all the UK workers and hiring foreign people in order to come in uh, cheaper on the budget balance sheet. 0344 499 Angela Levin coming up uh, in the next hour as well. She's going to be talking about uh, the latest scandal with the BBC and a payout to one of Princess Diana's top aides because of that Martin Bashir interview. 0344 499 We'll keep checking in uh, on the situation in Ukraine as well, of course. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Dr Tony Sewell, educational consultant, author of a government-backed report uh, into race in schools. Dr Tony, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. You've probably had your life slightly um, shaken up and patted down and mixed up for a while. Have things kind of returned to normal for you? It's, it's very good because it's sort of vindication time. But listen, can I just make some corrections? Yes. And we're going to be very careful. Nowhere in the report did we deny the existence of institutional racism. And that, that, that's, that's, that's almost like a, a myth that The Guardian has perpetuated. And others seem to kind of highlight that as a, as a, what we did is we said that in we, we found that people were using the term incorrectly and that, you know, um, we needed it to be much more precise and much more robust. Okay. But we do believe that institutional racism does exist. Well, what would you define that as, Tony? I actually don't know, really. I mean, let me, let me tell you the, the problem with it is I do know. But I think what it is, is that it's a term that's used now to sort of mean that you know that the society is so racist that you can't actually progress unless all the systems have changed right. uh, uh, that uh, uh, and, and changed it to, to us to the extent that you know you you can you can actually wipe out every piece of racism that exists now what, what, what we're trying to say is that what, what, what we see is that there are institutions that do practice and, and, and having their policies and practices racism it, it's, a, it's a reality and it exists um, but on the whole what we're saying is that the system is not totally stacked up so that black and ethnic pro, uh, minority groups can progress and there's a difference in that you've got to really be able to say call it out where it is specifically and deal with it but on the on the whole say that in fact even even then you can progress within the society and i think that's the difference um that's all i think a lot of people would look around britain today and see a very divided country tony i mean the way i look at it uh, is that we're uh, we've got lots of urban centers where there's a great deal of ethnic diversity but we've also got lots of rural parts of the country <coughs> Uh, which are not very ethnically diverse at all. You know, I've got kids that go to school in Sussex where almost everybody uh, at the school is white. And I've got a local school where I am in London where almost nobody at that school is white. Yeah, that, is, that, that, that issue, is, a, is, an issue is an issue. And I think we should 
tackle things around, you know, segregated or, or, or at least communities that are, that, that are separate. But let me tell you one thing. What you haven't done is looked at the, the other division within Britain, and that's a class one, mm. where you've got lots of white working class people on the south coast and in, in those boroughs, um, in those areas in the north of England, totally di divided off from a London centre that seems to be having, you know, all the goodies. So, you know, we, we can talk about division on race levels, but then there's a, another one which is on on, on your income and yeah. your class level. And oh, that's yeah. what we found out in our report. No, definitely. I mean, I speak about that on this show an awful lot because I think uh, several studies have found that some of the most underprivileged people in Britain right now are uh, white um, lower class, working class boys who don't seem to have very many opportunities really to do anything. And I talk about things like the BBC, which is actually quite diverse in terms of the colour of the people's skin that work there, but it's not diverse when it comes to class because almost everybody at the BBC is middle class. Yeah. I mean, we have a real problem in terms of helping. And that's why this report was so good in a sense. And now the government have responded to it positively in the sense that we looked at the complexities around, um, you know, ethnic and I think kind of what we would call maybe um, disparities in race as well. Yeah. And we included white working class in that number. Right. And, um, and, and the outcomes are really interesting. Here's a positive one I think your listeners will want to take on. It's, quite, it's, it's one that I, I don't think people really get. In London at the moment, in, in terms of education, ethnic minorities uh, particularly do really well. In fact, better than the rest of the country. So what we've suggested in the report is that we should share that love with the rest of the country, yeah? And so there is that, there is that um, idea of trying to work with everybody and cutting down the divides mm. and making the country fairer and a, a better leveling, level playing field. Right. So it does link into the government's levelling up agenda. OK. And so when you wrote the report and it was published, what do you think people got wrong about it because as you say the guardian have perpetuated some myths about it which which i've obviously fallen for uh, as have other parts of the left in terms of the race industry because i call it an industry because an awful lot of people are in it um what did they get wrong about what you said yeah the first thing they got wrong was absolutely wrong that we that we denied the existence of the racism and institutional racism we never denied that at all and i, I really it's very frustrating having to and that's where i think the, the myths start and I think they they needed that one because that that touched the nerve mm. that whole like idea of, and we as I said to you before all we did say was that we felt that institutional racism that the use of it just needed to be more robust and more specific that was all right. we didn't deny it at all and the other thing I think was that we in a way people felt that we were not feeling their pain and I, I say that because they thought here was a report that, that that was led by the data and didn't connect with people's lived experiences. But believe me, we all did. I, I went to school in the 70s and every day I used to walk to school and somebody would be shouting the N-word. And I had that from five to ten. Right. And my but I can tell you straight now that you, the UK, London is a completely different world than it was then. Mm. And it's improved, but it has a long way still to go. And that's that's the message, really. Yeah. And in terms of what you would suggest as to how it goes from here, then what would you what would you suggest? Because there are yes. those that that I speak to sometimes on uh, on programs like this, or just people that I encounter out out and about who now seem to to be saying 
well, surely now, surely it's the pendulum swung too far the other way. You know, there's a lot of places now where uh, it's quite difficult if you're a white middle-aged man to get the job that you might want to get because, you know, you're considered to be toxic. You're not considered to be diverse enough. And so there's a sort of disadvantage now for some people, uh, as they see it, for being white. Listen, I don't think there's necessarily a disadvantage for being white. I think what there is is a disadvantage if you haven't got the skills and and if your school is rubbish or if you haven't got aspirations around you or if people are not caring for your families. And this is about this. This affects both black and white. You know, I mean, that's the message that, that both both are. I mean, we could have put a race report out and not mentioned white people at all. Right. And that's what we're saying. Right. Some of the health outcomes are really interesting. They're really poor for a low-income white people. They really are in terms of mortality rates and, 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 and cancers. They're very poor. So what we've got to do going forward is recognise that these disparities affect both black, white and Asian, but they come in different ways. And that's why that term BAME doesn't mean, mean anything. Right. I'll give you one quick example. An Indian doctor in Harrow is a world away from a Pakistani uh, taxi driver in Bradford. Right. Yet we tend to categorise them as the same thing. Mm. And that's what we're trying to say. We've got to look at this in a much more intelligent way. And I hope your programme really does, Greg, Mike, because I'm a listener of your programme. I'm watching you regularly. Oh, good man. Well played. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I, 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 what I want you to give a message to your listeners is that Britain really, I mean, one, the, the, it's quite... African-Caribbean students and young people probably are in the same boat as white working-class kids. Yeah. There's the, 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 when we looked at the data and the problems that they had, so in fact, those two, those two groups should be coming together. It's not that black is over here and white is over there. They've got the same issues. It's just that um, it's, it, 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 it feels as if they're in two different worlds. But in fact, when you look at what's in front of them, in terms of all their outcomes, they're very close together. And if you've got that going, what we should be doing is we should be saying that, look, these groups, we should be giving policies and resources for both groups, yeah. not for just one or the other. And I wonder whether that was where the left sort of took exception to your report, because you were being very even handed. And, and yeah. as I say, when you talk about things like the race industry, they don't want that, do they? They just want it to be one sided, maybe. That's right. And we've got to be very careful. But on the other hand, you know, we have to, I don't want to leave this show people thinking, I know that Mike, you might not agree with this, but I mean, I think it works on both ends. I think there are perhaps people who live in white communities and think, oh, all those people, they have got everything and they don't have, they don't suffer like us. And then there's another group in black communities who think all white people are the same. And I think that's the problem. We've got to really see the world through this more complex lens mm. that sees that we both have similar interests and we've got to work together. And, and there are groups both on the right and the left that want to divide. Yes. Oh, for sure. And is it about education uh, as well? Because I sometimes, oft well, I quite often um, bang the drum for... Um, a more rounded education for everybody in the sense that, you know, maybe edu maybe going to university isn't for you. It might be that you can learn a trade. It might be that you can learn to do I something love, with, with your Mike, hands. Mike, you know? Mike, you're singing the sweet music because what we found is that apprenticeships, we still are in this country where we think that everybody has to go to university. And in fact, what we need to do now is have an education system that values apprenticeships, mm. that values skills, 
And that really is the key divider that we're finding now. We've got to get, at the moment, you know, there is work out there. There's lots of work, yeah. but our kids are not skilled up to, to take advantage of it. So, and our schools aren't either. So in our report, we've, we've, we've directed some policies towards government to change that. Yeah, because my son, for example, my oldest son lives in California. Um, he never went to university and he was always a bit of a sort of, um, you know, I don't want to say layabout, but I mean, he was basically, <laughs> you know, skateboarding, playing in a band, working in a yeah. shop. You know, he finally decided to get a qualification as a welder. Right. So he's now a welder uh, and he's got a great job working for this um, car refitting company. Um, and he's loving it. And, you know, it's taken him till he was 27 to kind of realize that opportunity and to, and to work out that actually it's not much fun not to have very much money. But he's happier than anyone I've ever seen um, who I went mean, to university I mean, and came out and went, what am I going to do now? Yeah, I mean, let me tell you one of the things that we have is some of the lower tier universities, and we do have too many ethnic minorities ending up in those doing things like business studies mm. and then dropping out. They've got the highest rate of dropout from those universities. And what we've got to do is we've got to really now market this whole issue of apprenticeships to some of those young people and see that there, that there is life in being an electrician, there is life in, in, in plumbing and all these other, I know yeah. those two coming up, but the construction industry is one yeah. that really needs these young people. Absolutely right. And what was the story with this honorary degree at Nottingham? I know, I know it's probably not very high on your list of priorities, <laughs> this one, but I mean, <laughs> I mean who needs well, an, an honorary degree, right? But I mean, it I've seems got, a bit hypocritical. Honest, I've, got, I've got a whole batch of them in my, my, my drawer anyway, you know. <laughs> so I was just sort of adding to the... No, I mean, the reality is that they just made it. I mean, let me tell you what happened. And people think, oh, they were just woke and they didn't want me on there. But what it was is a very cynical decision because they offered it to me and then they took it away. Mm. But what drove it, I actually believe, is the money. Money drove that. They see students as clients, £9,000 right. on the top of their heads. So what they do, they don't, they, they, any, any, any kind of sense that, that we're going to offend our client base, they then draw rank. So the, 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 the suits don't care about the politics of it. They just, they're just thinking about, oh, I better be frightened about this because it's cash and it might alienate our students. And yeah. that's what made them do it. Presumably that's why the president of Malaysia got one, because they want a load of yeah. foreign students coming that's in from right. Malaysia. Yeah. Right? They're just all about the cash. Yeah, amazing. Well, I'm sure you can live without an honorary degree from Nottingham University anyway, Tony. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm going to have to say, it's been, delightful, it's been delightful to talk to you, and, and you yeah. don't seem particularly controversial to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> And, we'll, and we should have a drink one time, Mike. We must. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. We'll get that organised. Well, maybe we can get you in and I'll take you out for lunch afterwards. Take care. Good man. Thank you very much indeed. Dr. Tony Sewell, educational consultant. What a splendid man. What an absolute uh, gentleman. And how much common sense did you hear from him? We've really got to get out of this ludicrous idea that all we, hang, all we can do with our kids is send them all off to university, uh, spend bucket loads of money, get them into thousands of pounds of debt. And then when they come out, they don't know what they want to do. Waste of time, isn't it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Nick Dubois is in for Ian Collins today. Nick will be here just before one o'clock to tell us what's coming up on his show. The government have decided to take advice 
uh, on what is going on with P&O ferries. They are going to see uh, whether or not uh, the law has been broken and whether they can, in fact, protect the workers at P&O uh, from all being fired summarily, dismissed, by the way, uh, late yesterday afternoon on a Zoom call. Don't forget, you can watch us as well as listening to us all the way through the day here. Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV+, Plus, Roku, YouTube. Now we're on Amazon Fire TV as well. Simply go to the App Store, download Talk Radio TV's app, or just go to the page talkradio.tv. Now, uh, we had earlier a caller from uh, the border with Ukraine and Poland telling us that he wanted to try and bring some people back, some refugees back to the UK, but he wasn't able to get onto the government website because it was down. Paul in Badgers Mount says this, whilst admiring your guys doing the help runs to Ukraine, who's doing the checks on the people who they want to bring back, security or otherwise? Uh, God help us. Do good as doing too much good. Well, I can see I can see what you're saying there, Paul, and I think you're absolutely right to have uh, that concern. You would like to think that uh, the checks will be being done as we speak with people who are wishing to bring people back. Because my understanding is that you can't bring anybody back to this country unless they've been named by someone else who says they're going to take them in. So that seems to be the rule at the moment. But let's talk uh, to Colonel Richard Kemp, former commander of British forces in Afghanistan, because there's a lot of questions today about the military might of Russia, why it's not working as well as it used to work, and why suddenly one of the generals who's been in charge of the uh, the Ukrainian fight um, has been arrested uh, by the Kremlin. Colonel Richard, uh, very good morning to you. Good afternoon, I should say. Good afternoon. Sorry, time flies when you're uh, when you're covering all of these international stories. Um, it's been a fascinating thing, has it not? I mean, obviously, notwithstanding the terrible subject of war in general, um, it's it's a very difficult place, it seems to me, to fight in Ukraine from the Russian perspective because it's so big. I think also it's not only big; it's also <clears throat> got got a huge amount of. Ukrainian resistance yeah. and very strong resistance and the terrain is difficult particularly up in the north mm. where there are limited roads and if you take particularly wheeled vehicles off the roads they get bogged in so those are some of the issues and, and another one of course is providing logistic support you've got to provide huge amounts of ammunition fuel rations etc to keep the column going to keep the advance going and mm. these things are all challenging Russia in a, in a significant way which is why we haven't seen um, many advances in recent days. In addition to which, they uh, you know they've taken quite a few casualties and they're looking to replace them with new forces coming in from Russia. Yes, I'm told there's new forces coming in from all sorts of places, like South Ossetia, uh, possibly from Georgia as well, um, because it seems as though their form of attack has changed kind of from week to week because I think this morning uh, they targeted Lviv, uh, which they hadn't done before. Um, the the uh, the opportunity to sort of encircle Kiev has been going on for about two weeks now, but hasn't really happened. Uh, they seem to have gained some ground, obviously, in the south uh, and over in Kharkiv, but they don't even actually run Kharkiv yet. Yeah, I think they're still struggling to get control of Kharkiv. And also, um, they, they they seem now to be making quite significant progress against Mariupol, the, sort, the, the port city in the south. Mm. They've been fighting there for a long time, killing a lot of Ukrainian civilians as well as military. Yes. Um, and, but it does look from the reports I've seen that uh, Mariupol is looking close to coming under Russian control. Yes. And I mean, as far as your analysis of, of the military kind of um, strategy, if you like, does it appear to have an end point or is it simply to disrupt and to kind of um, weaken and possibly to kind of um, dismay the locals to the point where they just give up? Yeah, I think that latter point is particularly important and we've seen uh, significant Russian rocket attacks and shells and, and uh, air attacks, uh, including on civilian populations. And that's partly designed to terrorise the population 
to show President Zelensky what lies in store if he doesn't come to terms with the Russians. And uh, we've seen, you know, we have seen in increasing violence. I think that's a change of tack from Russia uh, a couple of weeks ago after they realized that Ukraine wasn't just going to fall as a result of the invasion and some demonstrations of force. Yes. And what do you make of these stories about a general being arrested in terms of, um, you know, what that means for, for, for who's going to get the blame if it all goes wrong? Yeah, we've seen reports of arrests and uh, so on of, <coughs> of Russian generals and senior intelligence people in recent weeks as well. And, it, it, you know, it, this is not unusual for Russia to, to arrest and execute the, the, those generals that they hold responsible for the lack of progress or the failure to achieve quick victory. So I, I don't know whether the reports are true or not, but it would certainly be a possibility that um, you know, maybe Putin feels that the Russian army hasn't done what he expected them to do and is blaming the people at the top. Yes, quite. And as far as your knowledge of their kind of military might is concerned, I mean, can they continue like this for a long time or will it have to be something they draw back on after after a few weeks? Well, I think we're, we're seeing now indications that the Russians want to bring this to an end. Now, I don't know how serious that is, but we're seeing, you know, increasing discussions of peace talks and terms that Putin wants to impose on the Ukrainians. And that would indicate that he, you know, doesn't want to keep uh, keep on this attack, which is costing Russia a lot, not just in on the battlefield, but also in terms of the economic sanctions and other restrictions placed on Russia. So I think, you know, that's a, a possibility. We don't know how serious it is, but it's also possible Russia will just keep on fighting and fighting. Um, and, and if they do, there's a huge amount of devastation more for them to impose. We did see reports, I think, a few days ago that from the British Ministry of Defence that the Russian army can only fight on for another couple of weeks. Mm. Now, I doubt that. But even if it's true, two weeks is a very long time in war and, and a huge amount of devastation can be imposed on Ukraine, its civilians, its military by Russia's might. Yes, quite. And and Putin has been talking to the uh, the Turkish uh, President Erdogan uh, about possible t peace demands. So so there's certainly there is a move in that direction, certainly, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. And 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 the conditions that we're seeing coming out of uh, the Kremlin include, of course, the recognition by um, by Ukraine that that uh, Crimea and the Donbas areas that, that they've been controlling for a long time now are legitimately Russian. Also, the repudiation of membership of NATO um, and the disarming of, um, of of Ukraine to prevent them having weapons that could be used in aggression against Russia, which, of course, is not likely to happen. But it's yet another of the many terms that Putin's imposing. Now, whether Zelensky will decide that making these sacrifices is worth it to avoid further devastation in his country, we don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah. But. Either way, if that does happen, it's very much a defeat for Ukraine, even though they've imposed damage on Russia and, and the world has imposed damage on Russia. For Russia to be able to dictate these terms and have them accepted by Ukraine is certainly a victory for Russia. Yes, indeed. Although the military sort of um, battle, if you like, seems to be a case of, you know, 20th century tanks versus 21st century missiles, doesn't it? Because the, a lot of the, the stuff that we're giving to the Ukrainian forces and what the Americans are giving them as well, javelins, these drones that they can put up that can be carried in a sort of rucksack. They're very modern and very, very sort of effective weapons against what would seem to be quite an old fashioned set of hardware that the Russians have got. You know, the Russians, of course, have also got significant quantities of drones and sophisticated missiles, which they've been using. 
I don't think we should write off the tank as being something in history. Right. It's it's obviously still a very effective weapon. It's still we still need it. Russians still need it, um, despite these new weapons coming in. It, mm. You know, the way it works often is uh, a spiral whereby you know a new weapons introduced that is very threatening to a tank. The tank then develops new armor and new anti missile systems, etc. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say this war suggests an end to tank warfare, heavy artillery, etc. Um, but it certainly, it certainly, you know, gives I think a, a good indication of how effective some of this modern weaponry is, and we've mm. seen it in previous conflicts as well, not just this one. Yeah, I think you and I spoke some weeks ago about the British Army's plan to get rid of all the tanks, and it didn't seem like a very good idea, did it? It's a very bad idea, and we're looking at going down to about 150 tanks, something like that. Yeah, which is a, 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 a small fraction of the tanks that the Russians have been using in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, I th you know, and if we if we do if we are serious about deterring and maybe preventing r further Russian aggression against NATO states, then we certainly need tanks, and we need them in large numbers, as well as all the other systems and things like you know cyber uh, attack capabilities uh, and, and all the other different things we've been talking about. Unfortunately, Britain decided that in the last defence review that that the heavy uh, warfare capabilities was was less relevant today, and that the cyber and drones etc were more relevant which you know is not true i don't think i think we need we certainly need both at the moment and in the foreseeable future right and whether or not joe biden regards putin as a war criminal he's now called him a war criminal does that mean that that might have some bearing on any kind of peace talks that putin would seek to kind of get himself off that charge if you like uh, I, I i don't think he's got much chance of succeeding being having the, the charge of war criminal being reversed but what does it actually mean you know he, i think he would have expected that and is used to that kind of language uh, I, I don't think it indicates that we're likely to see him in front of a war crimes trial anytime in the near future it's a possibility if if there's regime change in russia mm. and and the new regime decides to hand putin over or try putin themselves if that occurs then yeah we could do but i don't think it's very likely i think that you know the most irrespective of whatever names he gets called the most i think the most uh, essential thing is that he is no longer in charge of russia because while he is he presents a very significant threat to the west and yeah. to the world so he needs to be got rid of one way or another whether it's by yeah. elimination permanent elimination i.e assassination or whether it's by uh, some other form of deposing him from within i think these are highly desirable we're not not particularly probable at the moment mm. i'm just watching a rally going on in luzhniki stadium in moscow currently where lots of russian flags are being waved it's a full stadium i think putin is going to speak to them about the eight-year anniversary of the annexation of crimea so they've managed to get a stadium full of people that like him i think he's a very popular man in russia still and of course you know not only is he respected by russians as a hard man obviously many russians don't like him, but he's, I think, overwhelmingly popular, despite what he's been doing in Ukraine. And of course, we shouldn't forget that the amount of information that goes to Russian people is controlled by Putin. And so he will, they will be seeing a picture of him that he wants them to see, which is why it's so important that we are able, as much as we can, to push the reality of what's going on, both in mainstream media and social media, towards the Russian people to help them understand the reality. The trouble, of course, is the more we attack russia in terms of sanctions other restrictions the more we speak against putin and if we got did get involved in something to bring him down that that potentially has the um the, the likelihood of stiffening russian resolve and stiffening support for him so it's a 
it's highly complicated and very difficult when you've got someone with such a grip on power as Putin to actually deal with him effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Good to talk to you, Colonel Richard Kemp. Thank you very much indeed, former commander of British forces in Afghanistan. Still um, saying that uh, it's a bit too early uh, to think about peace talks. It's a bit too early to think about Russia uh, giving up in Ukraine. It's a bit too early, really, to call it at this particular juncture. But uh, lots more to do throughout the course of the day. Of course, uh, you'll be hearing everything as it happens right here at Talk Radio. Coming up, uh, we'll take some of your calls. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say mid-morning with mike graham talk radio